This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. A decade ago, our biggest newspaper publisher did a deal to send its entire photo collection, dating back decades, to be digitised offshore. And that ended disastrously when the owner in Arkansas didn't deliver. Worse than that, he ended up under the FBI spotlight and the images never came back. Now, a new American owner has put them all on the market. MediaWatch asks him, is he just in this for the money? And where will these irreplaceable images actually end up? Also, Twitter baron Elon Musk reckons that getting it in the neck from those on the left and the right wing must mean he's doing the right thing. But in truth, he's doing almost everything wrong at the platform that he's overpaid for. But as we'll hear, he's not the only one in the media seeking validation in this way. Also this week, The Herald and its publisher NZME has now embarked on a months-long series with the bold goal of pushing back at short-term thinking and political tribalism, which they say is holding us back from building back our post-COVID economy and society. MediaWatch asks the driving forces behind this campaign how that can be done, and if that also means confronting some of the shrill voices in their own stable too. But first, a bit of that short-term thinking elsewhere in the media that they seem so concerned about. Welcome back. This is Today FM with Lloyd Burr Live and a bit of shaggy there for your Monday afternoon. It's 21 after 5 o'clock. We've got news headlines and a tick with Bridge. But first, there have been numerous hot takes about the latest News Hub Read Research political poll. It was Today FM's Lloyd Burr last Monday reflecting on the political poll that was released the night before, exclusively on News Hub at 6. And he was right about all those takes on that poll many of them from almost every one of his fellow hosts on that network. Tova is not convinced that Ardern's doing as well as she thinks she is. I agree with that as well. Garner, he says Labour needs to stop the rot. And I agree with that as well. But once rot sets in, it's really hard to stop it or cut it out. Uh, Smalley, she says Labour's going to roll out a big hit policy to bring swing voters screaming back to them. Those political opinion polls are an absolute godsend to radio hosts who need talkback talking points for their own daily editorial reckons. On Today FM, former News Hub political reporter Lloyd Burr followed the lead of his colleagues and tossed his two cents worth of poll takes into the overloaded mix as well. Well, I feel completely uninspired by all of the options. I don't believe in Jacinda Ardern anymore. I don't believe in all of her promises. But I don't believe Christopher Luxon can fix the country either. And that is a bleak vision of politics as just a matter of one party's prospective Prime Minister against another. And Lloyd Burr went on to air more of his unhappiness like this. I'm just pretty damn uninspired. We're bereft of inspiration with the options that are in front of us. But the two contenders to be our Prime Minister in a year's time, they're just boring. They're bereft of that magical ingredient that we all need right now, which is hope and a light at the end of the tunnel. But what's possibly just as boring for his listeners is political reporters and pundits' intense and reductive fixation on party leaders and the next election, no matter how far through the electoral cycle we actually are. And that was certainly on the mind of his Today FM colleague Rachel Smalley the same day. It does suggest something big is coming from Labour. They'll be pulling everything out of the bag in 2023 and a big hit policy to bring those swing voters screaming back to Labour from the centre-right is clearly on the cards. What is it? Now here we've picked on just one network on one day after a notable political opinion poll, but on other outlets there's been no shortage of that sort of narrow focus on politics as well. And it turns out that's one reason why another media company, where you'll also find plenty of this kind of political commentary, has launched a bold bid to lift that horizon a little. The new New Zealand Rebuilding Better. 
is a major new series from the New Zealand Herald and NZME, which seeks to answer these questions and help lay the pathway for a fairer and more prosperous Aotearoa. Now, launching this project, the New Zealand Herald picked out short-term political thinking as an issue in its editorial this week. New Zealand governments have for decades grappled with the need to get tangible results before the electoral cycle ends. In local government, we have legislation committing territorial authorities to 10-year long-term plans. Could such a measure be palatable in central government? Or do we need longer electoral cycles? Interesting question. And the Herald's new New Zealand project also aims to identify long-term national strategies and influence what governments will actually do in the near and far future. Coverage will continue into 2023 leading into one of New Zealand's most pivotal elections. We also want to hear from you. We want to create a space for constructive debate and go beyond traditional political divides to find some common ground. So join us as we play our role in creating a new New Zealand by rebuilding better. Now, one of the brains behind this ambitious effort is the Herald's business editor-at-large, Liam Dan. Under the headline, If We Want to Rebuild Better, We Need to Change Our Mindset, he said in the Herald this week that politicians afraid of upsetting or alienating voters at the margins or trying to set dead-centre policies to minimise the risk of that won't move this country forward, but debating things issue by issue might remove what he called the entrenched tribal dynamic, which leads to big policy failures on both sides of the political spectrum. And Liam Dan went on to say this in the Herald. I've always been highly sceptical of anyone whose politics makes them certain that one way is right and another way is wrong. And frankly, I think it is these people who are holding this country back. I'm sick of it, and I suspect a lot of New Zealanders are too. Now, awkwardly, the platforms of his own employer, NZME, routinely air definitive, strident condemnations of political decisions every day from their own journalists, columnists and radio hosts. One piece in the new New Zealand series published this week was one in which the boss of the New Zealand Initiative think tank, Oliver Hartwich, said our education system was a disaster in need of complete reform and the bureaucrats overseeing it must go. And if a war had wiped out our entire education system, the task could not be more daunting. Now, his call for a national education emergency to be declared was then turned into news by News Talk ZB. Educational outcomes have been sliding downwards for decades. In the latest global assessments, New Zealand was only marginally above OECD averages for science and reading and below them in maths. Hartwich says reform needs to start at the ministry. And in an interview the same day on NZME's News Talk ZB Drive show, Hartwich shared his grievances, but as far as constructive criticism goes, this was pretty basic. Oliver, NCEA is a load of nonsense, isn't it? Do you agree with me? Yes, um, because I think NCA makes it way too easy to pass without expecting yeah. any decent knowledge. And that was followed up on the drive show by non-expert pundits invited in to share their definitive views on how bad the education system is. Not much of a blueprint for building back better, so is that mindset shift that the Herald's Liam Dan was talking about also one the media needs to achieve? This week I asked Liam Dan about that, along with the other driving force of the Herald's Rebuilding Better project, senior newsroom editor David Rowe. Well, it's something we've actually been talking about all year. Coming out of last year and the, and the disruption uh, that was, occurred as a result of COVID, 
and also the protests that were starting to um, really grip the nation at that point, we, we wanted to actually take a step back and look at, you know, what, what are the broader issues? Is this an opportunity for us to actually have a serious think about a lot of, you know, long-standing systemic issues within New Zealand society and government as we rebuild from COVID, how we can do it in a way that's not just recreating what we've had in the past? But you have signalled this is going to get into health, education, and specifically uh, social division, as mentioned, as a topic that I guess is upcoming. I mean, David, how, how are you going to approach these wide-ranging issues? The idea is that we'll have, you have a series of themes, and we will camp out, if you, if you will, on each of the themes for, for a while. Like, for, for example, with the economy, that is about three weeks of content planned, but we'd be looking at getting into the next theme in December, you know, with about a month on each theme and looking at sort of six to seven themes. But we, we want to be a little bit flexible depending on what happens and what our audience is telling us. We ran a poll in our stories to say, you know, what, what theme do you want us to look at next? And social division was, you know, one that came up Trump. So, so we're working at that at the moment. Well, in your piece, Liam, about the change of mindset, you wrote about adversarial politics holding us back as a country, and one of the aims of the series that you're doing is to depoliticise the issues. But how are you going to do that? Because we, you know, we had a political poll on television uh, come out last weekend, and you know, constant references to, oh, we're already in an election year. All this stuff is going to be political in the in yeah. the year that we run up to yeah, it's going to be it's, it's going to be uh, horrendous fun exciting uh, all, all sorts of things um yeah look i'm, I'm going to keep doing what i do which is um tr- try and present a, a, a sort of a, a central path but without actually wanting to end up dead center and being peter dunn about it because uh, mm-hmm. as i mentioned i think that can also uh, mean doing nothing. I think we do need strong leadership and to make some big calls, and that's actually what this series is about. The important thing from my point of view is to look at the ideas, what they are rather than where they come from. You know, so that we'll have a range of ideas coming from you know, different aspects of the political system. You know, so at the moment we've got a spectrum, I should say. You know, we've got the piece from Oliver Hartwich of the New Zealand Initiative about education. They have done a lot of research on that area, and their their kind of research, particularly around literacy and structured literacy, has kind of really set the tone for a debate on that and brought those themes to the surface. So it, it would be terrible if people saw it as a, as, a, as a right-wing kind of point of view. Let's look at the ideas, no matter where they come from. It's interesting you bring that one up, because, yes, he wrote in the Herald on Wednesday about our education system being a disaster, that uh, was then picked up on News Talk ZB, your sister station. He did an interview on the, the Drive show. Where all this was repeated, and there were a few lines about we need better monitoring, we need a better assessment system. But, I mean, I could have written that. You know, so if, if they I have excellent research... I don't know if you've research, got the knowledge that he's got on yeah, But it, but it didn't honest. show in that article. That's my point. That was a very mm-hmm. kind of doctrinaire piece saying the, the system is failing, uh, it's it's got to be pulled apart, root and branch reform, and even in the interview that followed up on the radio, just a restatement about how bad it all was. That struck me as the sort of thing Liam, in his piece, was saying as an mm. example of what you were talking If they've got the greatest research on what would make our education system better, it wasn't in that article, and it didn't come through in the radio follow-up. Yeah, perhaps, it, but this is a long-term project, and one of the topics we're going to tackle in depth is education and that will be explored so it's not something that we're going to be able to solve in a day you know with one column but we have run a lot of coverage this year if you um, look back at our um, reading block series on this subject and a lot of the re- a lot of the research that came out earlier this year was from the New Zealand initiative mm-hmm. around literacy around the science behind structured literacy and how that can make a difference so 
I think to look at one column or one interview, you know, that's what we're trying to get away from. Is 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 we want it? That's why we're creating a, a an overall brand. We're creating a, a hub for this content so that we can explore it. Sure, but. Is this, Liam, perhaps, uh, reading your piece about this mindset shift, is it something that the media itself needs to do? Perhaps media have encouraged what you call the daily weekly scraps about the short-term economic cycle, you know, by publishing a lot of opinion and so on and daily coverage of politics and things like that? Yeah, well, we don't want to be boring, so we're never going to be boring, and we're also commercial to the extent that we've got to be attention-grabbing. And, and I, I would say I don't agree with you. I don't agree that Oliver is, is, is t- taking anything lightly. Um, I've talked to him at length about uh, education. He would, he would say deregulate, deregulate it, uh, decentralise it and get rid of the unions and I know that that's, that's pretty radical so that's a perspective but um, I, I think Oliver and the New Zealand Initiative are, are probably what I would consider after dealing with them for years, kind of a, a fairly open, honest reflection of, 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 of a, they don't even like being called this, but a neoliberal uh, right-wing perspective and if, if you know, sometimes it is good to have uh, perspectives from those extremes. What you're trying to get away from is um, personality, sort of non-science-based, uh, you know, stuff. Robust political debate is, is a good thing, and so you sort of like the piece I did. I, I've talked to Oliver, I've talked to Ganesh Nana from the Productivity Commission, who's really quite well known for having more sort of left-wing views, and then I've talked to people in the middle. So, so that there's a range there, but it's a grown-up discussion. It's not sort of I don't know, angry shouting. Yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of balance or political perspective or neoliberal or any kind of position. It was purely that I read the piece he wrote, I found it light on suggestions of how it could be reformed and just very heavy on how bad it all is. And that was amplified in the radio interviews that followed. They talked about yeah. getting back and, to and, basics. And that is, that sitting is there a, thinking, what the hell does this mean in the context of the That is an issue the for project. the right, I think, right mm. now. I think the hyperbole doesn't help that cause. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't think it even. I really don't even think it helps their cause. If you're talking about maybe feeling that centralised economies uh, are not as efficient as they could be, and, and all that sort of stuff, then then actually, um, sort of, uh, I'm certainly. Uh, I think a lot of the sort of uh, shrill anti woke kind of stuff isn't helping that cause. In, in terms of whether the media have to think about the, the attitude to this too. I mean, in, in your piece, you did say, you know. For example, we want a country with world-class infrastructure, more efficient transport options, safer roads, enough housing for everyone. Um, but, but I mean, thinking about you know your own outlets at NZME, you know, when you talk about you mentioned efficient transport options, uh, there is, for example, uh, coming across from your sister station ZB, a kind of almost uh, very intense focus on things like cycling, a real one-note attitude that actually, you know, the stuff that appears um, on NZME platform. So does the media need to rethink these issues as well if you're thinking about the broad themes we need to tackle as a country without getting doctrinaire? I think the media always needs to think about it. I, I, I can't talk for news talk. I mean, I, I, I get into scraps with, with the hosts there. Uh, there is an audience that feels that way. There's no doubt about that. Part of the problem, you know, re- regarding social division, if we want to go back to that, is, mm-hmm. you know, I've been talking to David Fisher about that because he wrote a piece on that this week and you know one of the things that that kind of struck him is is he started to engage with people that previously he had disregarded because they might have come at him with a you know hardline anti-vax stance quite aggressively and he would delete 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 and then you know then he this year decided that he would actually start talking to these people and find out what you know what's actually going on and Having done that, you know, his reflections were that, you know, a big part of it was not having a, not having a voice, you know, not having, you know, their, their views go against the current, 
you know, socially acceptable views. And, you know, that, that just creates this fermenting of, of, of kind of anger. Uh, and, and, and it's not to say you're going to indulge views that are unsafe. You know, we, we will seek to, to bust those myths, but it's, it's also looking at what are the reasons that they've come to those conclusions. Liam, you mentioned something in uh, your piece about the change of mindset. You said making policy uh, is a balancing act, but it shouldn't be a race to the dead centre. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that idea of poll-driven policymaking and, um, you know, caution about about needing to get, get the right, you know, voters at the margins is an issue, and it makes... Um, you know, leadership hard. I mean, I, you know, things like a capital gains tax are just sort of dead in the water in New Zealand because of that that sort of mindset. And, uh, you know, that does require leadership, but it requires a public that sort of, um, and a media that, that allows scope for that kind of discussion. Um, you know, I, yes, I mean, to quote again from your piece, uh, you said, what we need is bold leadership with the confidence to accurately implement the right policy approach for the right issue. But sometimes when politicians are bold, they can kind of be punished, not just by public opinion, but also in the media. I mean, for example, uh, charging emissions for agriculture, um, the fact that it would be a a world-leading thing to do, quite a lot of commentary in the media that I've heard from people saying, well, you know, the world doesn't care if New Zealand's world-leading or not. You know, there was heavy criticism in the media. For example, things like the country, I'm sorry to be NZME-centric, but but the country... They 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 reflect a farmer audience, don't Mm. they? I mean, that that, that is a a show that reflects the the views of farmers. And we've Uh, got to hear these views. I mean, that's the thing. It's about... There's going to to be a robust discussion. I think, yeah, and and to to, to what David's saying about underground voices, you know, if if you suppress what are people's reactions to things. You, you push people underground and you get to that, you know, uh, New World Order, anti-vax kind of... Uh, when, the, when there is a large... Uh, I don't want to make the joke, groundswell of... I just made it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do know what you mean. <laughs> ..of opinion, you have to acknowledge that, especially on a farming show or, or, or if your audience is, um, you know, a, a relatively conservative audience who feels that way. The media, you know, and, and we're a commercial organisation, so audiences always... Um, uh, central and there's kind of a constant dynamic of, of of how much we can push the agenda along and how much you know so so that there is a feedback loop between the media and audience. You know, I'm always in favour of you know the, the media doing what it can, but you don't want to be oppressively sort of uh, applying an agenda through the media, or you end up with people as we've seen just rejecting the mainstream media, and that's worse. So you have to be a fairly wide net, and you know. I would say NZME and the, and the Herald is a wide net. It's not it's not the same as the UK or somewhere where you have a segmented audience. The, the Herald and, and, and NZME generally is spreading its sort of view across the whole of New Zealand. So it's it's trying to it's a constant balancing act, and it's and it's thought about a lot by by senior editors. But just two two points. I think the boldness from the politicians should come in them sticking to their guns and their, and their beliefs on these issues. And also, I think, you know, around audience, I think the really important thing there is that you've got to have your audience with you. You can lead your audience or you can follow your audience, but you've got to have your audience with you. And, and that's, you know, that's something that we, we keep close to our um, thinking in, in everything that we do. The previous projects that we've done of this scale um, would be probably looking back to the 90% project um, last year. I can't believe it's only last year. And also the Great Minds Project about mental health. And, and what made those projects work is they did run for a long period of time. Will this project consider the, broadly the role of the media, maybe public trust in it? We'll probably come into that as you go through the whole uh, new New Zealand project. It will be, because one of the themes that came across, you know, when I was talking with David Fisher about, you know, what are the things that people agree on, 
an honest government that tells the truth and an honest media that tells the truth. You know, so I think we can all agree on that. Liam Dan, the business editor at large at the New Zealand Herald, and the Herald's senior newsroom editor, David Rowe, the main figures behind NZME's New New Zealand Rebuilding Better campaign, which you'll find online at nzherald.co.nz. And as you heard there, it'll be running for months, well into 2023, and they welcome readers' input. When the New Zealand Herald's Liam Dan was calling for that new mindset to face the future there, he noted that the shorthand labels of left and right when we talk about politics aren't really much help anymore. But it would take a lot to get the media to shift from that concept of the so-called political spectrum. Hayden Donnell now takes a look at how some in power in the media react when they're accused of bias or favouritism. It's been a relatively eventful few weeks for Elon Musk. The world's richest man bought Twitter on October 27 and promptly started unpacking a Russian doll of crises. One of his first moves at the company was firing half its workers. Then, a few days later, came the news that he may have acted a little hastily. Gemma, after sacking half of his workforce, it turns out he had to actually ask some of the employees back. Yes, and anyone hoping that the chaos would stop now that Elon Musk actually owns Twitter is probably uh, quite disappointed. Uh, for the rest of us, the circus continues. As he haphazardly took a buzzsaw to Twitter's workforce, Musk was asking its shell-shocked remaining employees to roll out a new feature allowing any user to be verified and get a blue check next to their username. The scheme sparked a revolt among Twitter's existing verified users, many of whom changed their usernames to Elon Musk in an effort to point out one of the issues with allowing anyone to get verified status. Musk promptly announced that those impersonating someone without clearly labelling their account a parody would be suspended from Twitter, meaning other users, including some with millions of followers, are now banished from the platform. At the same time, Musk was saying this about how the new verification system would function. The verified users will will pretty much always be at the top of of comments and search, and you won't really see, you'll have to scroll far to see the unverified uh, users, which will be the bots and, and trolls and whatnot. Many people pointed out the more likely net effect would be that the site would be wrecked for a lot of people who would no longer be able to see comments from their friends who aren't verified. Meanwhile, those who want to harass people or generally be trolls will be able to do so far more effectively for just $8 a month. All these moves have resulted in a barrage of criticism for Musk and he's responded with a defence that could easily have come from some of the editorial leaders now taking aim at him. Being attacked by both right and left simultaneously is a good sign. That tweet from Musk sounded familiar to us here at Media Watch HQ, mainly because it has been echoed by a host of local media executives over the last few months. In a chat with Herald Premium subscribers in March, Weekend Herald editor Mariana Alexander responded to someone asking about bias. It feels about right to me when we get equal criticism from those from the left and right. TVNZ said something similar recently after its political editor Jessica Much Mackay was accused of bias for this throwaway comment on RNZ. We are encouraging him to try and um, do some more photo opportunities and people need to get to know him. When critics accused Much Mackay of giving PR advice to National's leader, TVNZ said her comments were misconstrued and 
that it's worth noting she and TVNZ receive complaints of this nature from both sides of the political spectrum, suggesting balance in reporting. The presence of criticism from across the political spectrum seems to be a kind of editorial North Star among our media leaders. On one level, it makes sense. It's good for journalists to be willing to annoy politicians of all stripes without fear or favour. Independence is a virtue. But there are also some issues with that line of thinking. Its most obvious problem is that being criticised by the right and left simultaneously isn't always a mark of impeccable fairness and balance. It could just mean that you're screwing up so catastrophically that your foolishness is now the subject of a makeshift bipartisan accord. Hi, Elon Musk. In other words, there's no immutable law saying the truth is located somewhere in the middle of the prevailing right-wing and left-wing views. Sometimes one side might be a bit closer to the evidence than the other, and if that's the case, it's not a journalistic obligation to annoy the people who are saying stuff that actually makes sense. As the old adage goes, when someone tells you it's raining and another says it's not, it's not your job to print both views, it's your job to look out the window. One place where that's particularly relevant right now is the US, where Republicans are welcoming a coterie of election deniers and conspiracists into the mainstream of their party. This is the MSNBC presenter Mehdi Hassan on how taking a pro-democracy lens should shape media coverage in that country in a way that might seem like bias to some editors. As a journalist, I'm not here to speak for a political party, but I am damn well here to speak for democracy, for free and fair elections, for voting rights. Sorry, there's no both sides when it comes to democracy. You can't sit on the fence or be neutral when our voting rights are under assault. I said it before and I'll say it again. As journalists, we should have a bias towards democracy. Just because our system is a bit more balanced, it doesn't mean Musk is right. It's not always a good sign if you're being attacked from the left and the right. Sometimes it just means you haven't done your job of looking out the window and checking who's telling the truth. Hayden Donnell there on how copping criticism from the left and the right wing doesn't necessarily mean the media are doing the right thing. Back in 2013, our biggest publisher of news, Fairfax Media, these days under new management as Stuff, did a deal which seemed like a good idea at the time. But it ended up meaning decades' worth of irreplaceable images of national historical significance were stripped from its vaults, sent offshore, never to return again. But maybe not, as we'll hear. Under the Protected Objects Act, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage has the power to refuse permission to export photos over 50 years old, but it turned out that Fairfax Media didn't know about that when it did that deal. But it eventually secured permission anyway to send almost its entire photographic archive to an operator in the US who promised, in exchange for the originals, to digitise the lot. Millions of photos and negatives gathered over more than 100 years for the press, the Evening Post, Timaru Herald, Manawatu Standard and plenty more papers. And plenty of other news publishers, including Fairfax's Sydney Morning Herald, had also taken up the same or similar offers from the Rogers Photo Archive in Little Rock, Arkansas. Well, two years later, it emerged that the digitising of Fairfax's New Zealand photos was nowhere near done but some images were allegedly being cherry-picked from the collection that were showing up for sale on eBay. 
The FBI then raided John Rogers' home in 2014 after sports memorabilia he sold turned out to be copies. Not a good sign for anyone trading original photos for copies, as Fairfax and others had done. And after that, the Rogers Photo Archive Company faced lawsuits of almost $100 million US in total, including one from Fairfax's parent company in Australia. Now, soon after that, the company went into receivership and the Fairfax Photo Taonga went into limbo. We called John Rogers at that time, and all we got was this. The mailbox is full and cannot accept new messages at this time. To leave a callback number, press 5, or please try again later. But George Walden did pick up the phone in Little Rock, Arkansas, when we called back then. He was the senior editor at the Arkansas Business Weekly. All of the images that are part of the New Zealand collection and the Sydney Morning Herald are safely in his control in a safe, secure warehouse in North Little Rock, part of the the Rogers uh, facilities. As I understand it, too, the Melbourne Age archive in its entirety was returned because they hadn't started any uh, digitization work on that yet. Well, that was reassuring, and George Walden also told me back then that the digitisation was reportedly about half done and the court-appointed receiver was trying to do a deal with Fairfax Media and New Zealand's government to return the images. From what I could discern, the courtroom Fairfax seems to be well represented. They were there, you know, uh, lawyers on their behalf stating their claim and uh, photos are in the possession of the receiver and he doesn't have any intention to, uh, to sell or do anything until he is satisfy Fairfax's concerns. Again, reassuring that they were being preserved and might be recovered or even repatriated. But the trail then went cold, as far as the media here were concerned, until June this year when some of the collection of images was sold through the auction house webs. One sale offered more than 700 images of the royal family in New Zealand, all from that Fairfax archive. Now, it turned out that the owner was Los Angeles-based art dealer Daniel Miller, who'd been negotiating the purchase of the Fairfax archive with the receiver in Arkansas, and that deal was finalised back in 2017. The New York-based Artnet News reported at that time that Daniel Miller had hired librarians to sort the images and even went to Australia to try and do deals with libraries and museums there. The archive selection of 25,000 cricket photographs, for example, found a new home at the Donald Bradman Museum in Boral, New South Wales. And then this week, in a statement from a local PR agent here, Daniel Miller said he had difficulty finding the best fit with an auction house here in New Zealand to make the images available, so his company has instead launched its own online local auction platform, thefairfaxarchives.co.nz, where he says the images can now be purchased. But how exactly will they be sold, and if they don't sell for a profit, well, what will Daniel Miller in LA do with them? I never set out to actually try to do this, I was contacted by the court receiver. So when Rogers went upside down, when their company went bankrupt, he went to prison personally for other fraud that he did. The archive, this particular archive secured a note of his, a loan of his to a local bank, a very large loan. So the local bank actually took possession of the archive. They had no idea what to do with photographs. They had, it's not their business. They're in a rural area in Arkansas. So a few people were contacted, came out apparently and viewed it, and nobody could. There were just too many photos. Um, I was contacted. I came out a few times and looked at it. Originally, I didn't want to do it. It was going to just sit and get moldy somewhere, or it was going to get uh, sent to the landfill. We negotiated for a long period of time, and we ended up buying the work. 
Now, when the photographs initially went offshore, that required permission from our government because photographs over 50 years old were considered to be of historic uh, importance. Um, have you at any point uh, you know, tried to engage the government or have they been receptive, if you did, to them returning them or, or via some institutional purchase uh, here in New Zealand? That could... My ongoing intent is to have every one of them back into New Zealand. There's no reason for them to be anyplace else. The problem is when we first, when I was first looking at this, I contacted a couple of the institutions and it, it, there were too many photos. They didn't want everything. I hired two different archivists to go through and organize the material for three and a half years, one photo at a time, basically, to give us a handle, a sense of what we even had, because frankly, I didn't even know what that was. You know, we have different sections of material that we could offer to different institutions. We did the exact same approach in Australia. We started a couple of years earlier in Australia with the Sydney Morning Herald Archive. The archive now is in 70 different institutions around Australia, some really great institutions. The National Library has come back to buy its third section of work from us. There's no uh, playbook for this. this. This really hasn't been done before. So I'm just trying to borrow from what we learned in Australia and try to do it better in New Zealand. So we're contacting museums, we're contacting institutions, libraries, private collectors, etc., to find a way to get these pieces back. But have you found New Zealand institutions and, and libraries and museums not, not as receptive? Because I imagine if you've now gone ahead and set up a website where individual images can be bought by individual New Zealanders, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that that kind of hasn't worked? Uh, we're in the early stages of it, and we did the same thing in Australia. We did many single-piece auctions. And in New Zealand, in fact, for the last two years, we've done many single-piece auctions using an auction house in Auckland. It's a tiny fraction of the archive that's gone through the auction block, and it's more of an advertisement for institutions that we want to actually encourage to buy sections of the work. <laughs> you aren't a librarian or an archivist or a charity. You're in business. You are a, a dealer, aren't you? I'm presumably, you need to make sure you, at the very least, uh, cover what must be fairly substantial costs of looking after that amount of precious photographs. You must be wanting to uh, make a return on this. Obviously, I want to get the money back that we've had into this. I, look, my assumption on both the Sydney Archive and this New Zealand Archive was we would own it for a couple of months, get it to one institution in country, and have it be done. And great, we could save it, we could help it, we'd be the bridge. Well, we ended up, instead of being a bridge, being our own island. It's kind of a downside because I never expected to actually have to do all this. The single-piece auctions have helped us, helped us offset costs for institutions so they can have lower costs to be able to acquire. That's kind of what we're after. At the end of the day, yes, we need to get our money back. It's The costs have been extraordinarily high. We're not in the black yet, and we're in this project for about a little over three years. I, I think it's going to work out, but it's, it's one of the reasons why we opened an auction house, our own auction house in Auckland. And the first auction actually launches on the 14th of this month, 59 photographs, historic photographs of Queen Street. Fantastic work. 
Are you slightly disappointed that perhaps some central organisation like our National Library, you mentioned the Australian one, uh, had become involved or our National Archive, you know, hadn't stepped up or, or even the media company itself, uh, which is still uh, in operation, albeit under a different name now, uh, that they weren't interested in maybe reacquiring the images that I think they now regret um, sending overseas in the condition that they did uh, back in 2013? Back then, Fairfax was, I would consider, a wounded animal. They were just trying to stay alive. The the heyday of Fairfax was, what, 1991, I think, when newspapers were thick. So now they have all this, all these pieces of real estate. They have all this material. They have all this stuff. I, I think the appetite to have these old photos was small. They didn't know what to do with them. And I think they were happy when they went away. The company that did the scanning was telling them that they would get immediate revenue licensing the material, blah, blah, blah. It was mostly just a bunch of charade. And, and uh, if, you know, I've learned in life, most people have learned in life, if it sounds too good to be true, you better take two looks at it. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, what was it? I mean, I could see what attracted them to the idea, you know, send all the originals offshore, then you'd you get back a digitized captioned archive that you know you could use um perhaps a, a you know a better um a better outfit than the Rogers photo archive might have made that work i think it was a terrible idea i think everything about it i think the management of fairfax should be held accountable so when people are trying to hate us for this cuz we have our share of haters cuz people thinking well they're dividing it all up this should be all one thing it should be together that's really easy to say okay and if somebody has the money to cough up to buy this whole thing from us right now, today, I'd be happy to hand it over to a patriotic, high net worth New Zealander. But it's a lot to handle. Let me go back to one thing, one really super important thing you mentioned before, and that's the Protected Objects Act. So that's the question of, well, should these ever have been sent? Should there have been a special export permit? Should there have been this? Should there have been that? These decisions that were done back then were decided by bureaucrats that don't know anything about photographs at all. As far as I can tell, not a single person really looked at this material before they just decided it was going to be this or decided it was going to be that. So we needed to look into that really carefully. So I hired a researcher. I hired two researchers, actually, a New Zealander and an American, to look into this Protected Objects Act. And the fact is, clearly... Under any auspice, this archive doesn't fall under that category. So, so actually, there's nothing in the law that would have prevented or required the permission for the sale. They could have gone ahead and done it without the government being involved at all? So the government's only contention, and we've received a couple of emails from the government, and their only contention is, well, just tell us where they're stored in New Zealand. And then every, everything is happy, no problem. So I discovered some that were stored in New Zealand in an outside storage locker at a Kennard storage facility. 10%, maybe 15% of the ones that were stored there were ruined from black mold. So these were just locked up in a storage unit and somewhere in a commercial uh, storage premises. Hmm. Yes, and I found it and I lost my mind because I'm thinking, what, are they crazy? Is no one even looking at this thing? And the only times we hear from your government is when a reporter is asking about this thing, and all of a sudden we get a bunch of letters from some government official or whatever about this stuff. It's really important to have cultural heritage protected. I'm a great believer in that. But there are three reasons why this is a problem with this archive. 
And if and I've read the act a hundred times. One of the reasons is, first of all, it only protects works over 50 years old. Sure. And that's maybe 10% of this archive, maybe 15% of this archive. Now, it only protects works that were have some New Zealand consequence. This archive is about 30% uh, Commonwealth. So there's a ton of British and other foreign material in here. You mean actually but, the photographs originally shot offshore that have been subsumed into the oh, article? Absolutely. Think about all the royal type material that was prepared or the, the British military material, British diplomats, politicians, all this stuff that there was, a, there was a large appetite for this material back in the day. The Cultural Act says that, and it says correctly that, if similar objects are included in two or more public institutions in New Zealand, the act does not apply. So whether that would be a painting, whether that would be any protected object at all, a Maori object, whatever it might be, that's the rule. So our researcher researched 50 different institutions in New Zealand. We discovered there are about 10 million photographs plus of similar varieties to this archive split across 50 different institutions. Apparently, the government didn't either didn't know, didn't care, or didn't take the time to look. And just finally, Daniel, how close were we to actually losing these or to some of the photos being either ruined or in the end destroyed if, if no buyer could be found? Well, some were some were stolen out of the archive when they existed in Arkansas. They reclaimed some, they reclaimed many of those, but some were actually just actually stolen because they really didn't have great security protection. So that was a problem. I think they reclaimed most of them. Uh, the the conditions of the storage, was, I'm I'm sorry to say, was abysmal. People just didn't understand. For example, you cannot send photographs in a refrigerated container. So these the containers that sent these things back and forth uh, in the early days were refrigerated. So a refrigerated container makes its own kind of a cloud inside, makes moisture, and ruins photographs. And I have to tell you, at this moment, in this archive, somewhere between 10 and 15% is completely ruined. I can tell you, at this moment, these photos are in the best storage they've been in, in their entire life. That's a fact. I'm looking at two meters right now. I can I can see the humidity of the warehouse in my phone when I travel. So we're 42% humidity now, which makes me very happy. That was Daniel Miller from the Duncan Miller Gallery in Los Angeles, the owner of the Fairfax Media Photo Archive, which was sent offshore here back in 2013 to be digitised by a company in Arkansas, which went spectacularly belly up, and its owner, as you heard, put in prison. And as you also heard there from next week, Daniel Miller's selling selected images on a new online auction site, thefairfaxarchives.co.nz. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this week, but we'll be back again after the 10pm news on Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on Nights with Karen Hay, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.